Chapter 2. Morality The first part of this paper looked at Christian morality as it specifically related to homosexuality. This next half looks at other areas of Christian morality, with specific attention to areas where I believe Christian morality has diverged from the world's understanding of morality. Before looking into specifics, it's important to first establish the key concepts of morality. Most of this first section comes from C.S. Lewis' book, Mere Christianity. He did such a good job, in most cases, I had nothing to add and quote C.S. Lewis directly. I would strongly recommend the book, Mere Christianity, to anyone who knows how to read. Section 1. Morality. Law of Human Nature. The dictionary definition of morality are principles concerning the distinction between right and wrong, or good behavior and bad behavior. C.S. Lewis calls it the law of human nature. He explains that human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way and cannot really get rid of it. Section 2. Morality supersedes culture. As C.S. Lewis points out, there have been differences between the moralities of different civilizations and ages, but these have never amounted to anything like a total difference. If anyone will take the trouble to compare the moral teachings of, say, the ancient Egyptians, Babylonians, Hindus, Chinese, Greeks, and Romans, what will really strike him will be how very like they are to each other and to our own. Think, instead, of a country where people were admired for running away in battle, or where a man felt proud of double-crossing all the people who had been kindest to him. You might as well try to imagine a country where two and two make five. Men have differed as regards what people you ought to be unselfish to, whether it was only your own family or your fellow countrymen or everyone, but they have always agreed that you ought not to put yourself first. Selfishness has never been admired. Men have differed as to whether you should have one wife or four, but they have always agreed that you must not simply have any woman you liked. Section 3. Morality is Absolute Morality must be absolute. Otherwise, it would be meaningless to say someone else was acting immorally. As C.S. Lewis points out, if your moral idea can be truer, and those of the Nazis less true, there must be something, some real morality, for them to be true about. The reason why your idea of New York can be truer or less true than my idea of New York is that New York is a real place, existing quite apart from what either of us thinks. What is the sense in saying the enemy were in the wrong unless right is a real thing which the Nazis at bottom knew as well as we did and ought to have practiced? If they had no notion of what we, what we mean by right, then, though we may still have had to fight them, we could no more have blamed them for that than the color of their hair. Section 4. Moral Progress No society is perfect and God, working through Christians, help guide societies toward moral progress. As C.S. Lewis points out, when you think about these differences between the morality of one people and another, do you think the morality of one people is ever better or worse than that of another? Have any of the changes been improvements? If not, then of course there could never be any moral progress. Progress means not just changing, but changing for the better. If no set of moral ideas were truer or better than any other, there would be no sense in preferring civilized morality to savage morality, or Christian morality to Nazi morality. In fact, of course, we all do believe that some moralities are better than others. We do believe that some of the people who tried to change the moral ideas of their own age were what we would call reformers or pioneers. 
people who understood morality better than their neighbors did. Section 5. Morality is not about convenience. The concept of right and wrong has nothing to do with what is convenient to you. C.S. Lewis points out, I am not angry, except perhaps for a moment before I come to my senses, with a man who trips me up by accident. I am angry with a man who tries to trip me up even if he does not succeed. Yet the first has hurt me and the second has not. Sometimes the behavior which I call bad is not inconvenient to me at all, but the very opposite. Section 6. Morality is not an instinct. It governs instincts. As C.S. Lewis points out, feeling a desire to help is quite different from feeling that you ought to help whether you want to or not. Supposing you hear a cry for help from a man in danger, you will probably feel two desires. One desire is to give help due to your herd instinct, and the other desire is to keep out of danger due to your instinct for self-preservation. But you will find inside you, in addition to these two impulses, a third thing which tells you that you ought to help to follow the impulse to help and suppress the impulse to run away. Now this thing that judges between two instincts, that decides which should be encouraged, cannot itself be either of them. You might as well say that the sheet of music which tells you at any given moment to play one note on the piano and not another is itself one of the notes on the keyboard. The moral law tells us the tune we have to play. Our instincts are merely the keys. Another way of seeing the moral law is not simply one of our instincts is this. If two instincts are in conflict, then there is nothing in a creature's mind except those conflicts. Obviously, the stronger of the two must win. But at those moments when we are most conscious of the moral law, it usually seems to tell us to side with the weaker of our two impulses. You probably want to be safe much more than you want to help the man who is drowning. But the moral law tells you to help him all the same. And surely it often tells us to try and make the right impulse stronger than it naturally is. I mean, we often feel it is our duty to stimulate the herd instinct by waking up our imaginations and arousing our pity and so on. So, as to get on with enough steam for doing the right thing. But clearly, we are not acting from instinct when we set about making an instinct stronger than it is. The thing that says to you, your herd instinct is asleep, wake up, cannot itself be the herd instinct. The thing that tells you which note on the piano needs to be played louder cannot itself be that note. If the moral law was one of our instincts, we ought to be able to point to some one impulse inside us, which was always what we call good, always in agreement with the rule of right behavior, but you cannot. There are none of the, our impulses which the moral law may not sometimes tell us to suppress, and none which may not sometimes tell us to encourage. It is a mistake to think that some of our impulses, say, mother love or patriotism, are good, and others, like sex or the fighting instinct, are bad. All we mean is that the occasions on which the fighting instinct or sexual desire need to be restrained are rather more frequent than those for restraining mother love or patriotism. But there are situations in which it is the duty of the married man to encourage his sexual impulse and of the soldier to encourage his fighting instinct. There are also occasions on which mother love for her own children or a man's love for his country have to be suppressed or they will lead to unfairness toward other people's children or countries. Strictly speaking, there are no such things as good and bad impulses. Think once again of the piano. It has not got two kinds of notes on it, the right notes and the wrong ones. Every single note is right at one time and wrong at another. The moral law is not only one instinct or any set of instincts. 
It is something which makes a kind of tune, the tune we call goodness or right conduct, by directing the instincts. Section 7. Morality exists outside science. Science cannot prove the existence of morality. As C.S. Lewis points out, Science works by experiments. It watches how things behave. But why anything comes to be there at all, and whether there is anything behind the thing science observes, something of a completely different kind, that is not a scientific question. If there is something behind, then it either has to remain altogether unknown to men, or make itself known in some different way. There is one thing, and only one, in the whole universe which we know more about than we could learn from external observation. That one thing is man. We do not merely observe men, we are men. Anyone studying man from the outside as we study electricity or cabbages, not knowing our language and consequently not able to get inside knowledge from us, but merely observing what we did, would never get the slightest evidence that we had this moral law. How could he? For his observations would only show him what we did, and the moral law is about what we ought to do. In the same way, if there is anything above or behind the observed facts in the case of stones or the weather, we, by studying them from the outside, could never hope to discover it. We want to know whether the universe simply happens to be what it is for no reason, or whether there is a power behind it that makes it what it is. Since that power, if it exists, would not be of the observed facts, but a reality that makes them, no mere observation of the facts can find it. There is only one case in which we can know whether, whether there is anything more, namely our own case. And in that case, we find there is, or... Put another way around, if there was a controlling power outside the universe, it could not show itself to us as one of the facts inside the universe, no more than the architect of a house could actually be a wall or staircase or fireplace in that house. The only way in which we could expect it to show itself would be inside ourselves as an influence or a command trying to get us to behave in a certain way, and that is just what we do find inside ourselves. Surely this ought to arouse our suspicions. In the only case we can expect to get an answer, the answer turns out to be yes. Section 8. Cannot be atheist or agnostic. The atheist believes there is nothing outside what science can prove through observation, and the agnostic believes there is no way to know if there is anything outside what science can prove through observation. Because morality exists but is unobservable, being a law that governs what man ought to do and not what man does, an atheist or agnostic must deny morality. The atheist and agnostic may say that morality is individualistic, and they may say that right and wrong are meaningless words outside of the individual, but the atheist and agnostic cannot say that someone else is wrong to do something if there is no external moral law by which to judge them. But the atheist agnostic who says there is nothing outside what science observes must deny that this external morality exists, denying that there is a standard of how man ought to behave and yet is free to break. The atheist agnostic cannot say that the Nazis were wrong for killing Jews any more than they can say the Nazis were wrong for having blonde hair. They may say that it's wrong for themselves to own slaves, but they cannot say that a member of another society is wrong to own slaves. For the atheist agnostic, morality must be a choose-your-own-adventure. Only when the atheist agnostic admits that there is a law that governs how man ought to act and is free to break, 
can they begin to grapple with what right behavior is. But by admitting that there is a law outside of what science can observe, they admit that there is definitely something outside what science can observe, and are thus no longer an atheist or agnostic. Put another way, the atheist philosopher Voltaire is famous for saying, There is no God, but don't tell that to my servant, lest he murder me at night. If the atheist agnostic is right, there can be no absolute morality. Because nothing exists outside what science can observe, morality must therefore be up to the individual to decide, based on his own preference. If he thinks murder is wrong, then that is his choice. If he thinks he has justification to murder a cruel master, then that is his choice. If he thinks he has justification to murder a kind and gracious master, then that is his choice. If morality is an individual decision, although society may create laws that encourage behavior that they favor, they cannot say another society is wrong to disagree. We may believe it's wrong in America to kill homosexuals because they are homosexual, but if there is no absolute morality, then we have no right to tell the Islamic State in Iran that brutally killing homosexuals by throwing them off the tops of buildings is wrong. However, because President Trump and the current administration does believe there is absolute morality, and believes that everyone at bottom knows there is an absolute right and wrong, President Trump has pushed to decriminalize homosexuality worldwide. Section 9. What Morality Tells Us About God Thus, both creation and morality give us information about God. As C.S. Lewis points out, we have two bits of evidence about the somebody who has given us the moral law. One is the universe he has made. If we used that as our only clue, then I think we should have to conclude that he was a great artist, for the universe is a very beautiful place, but that he is also quite merciless and no friend to man, for the universe is a very dangerous and terrifying place. The other bit of evidence is that moral law which he has put on our minds, and this is a better bit of evidence than the other because it is inside information. Now, from this second bit of evidence, we conclude that the being behind the universe is intensely interested in right conduct, in fair play, unselfishness, courage, good faith, honesty, and truthfulness. Section 10. Life Force Philosophy Besides the materialist view of the atheist agnostic, there is nothing or no way to know if there is anything beyond what science can observe, and the religious view, there is more to this universe than science can observe, there is therefore a god with a mind that created it, there is also, as C.S. Lewis points out, the in-between view called life force philosophy, or creative evolution, or emergent evolution. People who hold to this view say that the small variations by which life on this planet evolved from the lowest forms to man were not due to chance, but the striving or purposefulness of a life force. When people say this, we must ask them whether by life force they mean something with a mind or not. If they do, then a mind bringing life into existence and leading it to perfection is really a god, and thus their view is identical to the religious. If they do not, then what is the sense in saying that something without a mind strives or has purposes? This seems to me a fatal flaw in their view. One reason why many people find creative evolution so attractive is that it gives one much of the emotional comfort of believing in God and none of the less pleasant consequences. When you are feeling fit and the sun is shining and you do not want to believe that the whole universe is a mere mechanical dance of atoms, it is nice to be able to think of this great mysterious force rolling through the centuries and carrying you on its crest. If, on the other hand, you want to do something rather shabby, the life force, being only a blind force with no morals and no mind, 
will never interfere with you like that troublesome god we learned about as children. The life force is a sort of tame god. You can switch it on when you want, but it will not bother you. All the thrills of religion, and none of the cost. Is the life force the greatest achievement of wishful thinking the world has yet seen? Section 11. Morality, the Foundation of the Christian Gospel This understanding of morality, in fact, is the foundation of the Christian gospel. There exists a law of how we ought to act, and we have all knowingly broken that moral law. Because we have each broken that moral law, we each stand condemned before the lawgiver, and apart from Jesus' sacrifice, we will each have to pay our own debt for having broken that law. As A.B. Earl said, I have found by long experience that the severest threatenings of the law of God have a prominent place in leading people to Christ. They must see themselves lost before they will cry for mercy, and will not escape danger until they see it. Section 12. People are not evil. Ideas and actions are evil. A person cannot be evil incarnate, but rather he or she chooses to think or act in an evil or immoral way. Alexander Shosenitsyn made this point in the Gulag Archipelago when speaking about the horrors of communism as manifest in Russia. If only it were so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And C.S. Lewis makes this point as well from a Christian perspective. God created things which had free will. That means creatures which can go either right or wrong. Free will, though it makes evil possible, is also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. Nelson Mandela also made note of the dangers of making this mistake. When we dehumanize and demonize our opponents, we abandon the possibility of peacefully resolving our differences and seek to justify violence against them. We should condemn evil ideas and hold those accountable who do evil acts, but as all three point out, we need to recognize that within every heart there is the capacity for both good and evil. We must not dehumanize and demonize our opponents. Instead, we need to attack the evil ideas and evil actions, not the person. We should hate the sin and the desire for sin, but not the sinner. Section 13. Not Politics This is not about politics. There is no Christian party, nor should there be. Christians should always seek to elect politicians who will uphold the best morality. If there is a party or politician who supports an immoral position, then we should not vote for them. On the other hand, if all parties agree on issues of morality, then we vote based on what we believe would be the best outcome with other issues, like social issues, fiscal issues, and immigration issues. But it's important to distinguish not all issues are moral issues. Section 14. No Gay Political Party There is no political party for homosexuals, blacks, Latinos, straights, whites, or other group an individual might be born into. One clear example of this groupthink ideology was seen when the white Democrat presidential nominee for 2020, Joe Biden, said, Well, I tell you what, if you have a problem figuring out if you're for me or for Trump, then you ain't black. Likewise, Maxine Waters, Democrat of California, scolded Cayenne West, a rapper, when he said that black people should think for themselves instead of just voting Democrat. And this was also illustrated by Representative Ayanna Presley, Democrat of Massachusetts, who said, we don't need any more brown faces that don't want to be a brown voice. We don't need black voices who don't want to be a black voice. We don't need Muslims who don't want to be a Muslim voice. We don't need queers that don't want to be a queer voice. Don't even show up. As John Miller responded, 
Well, being black, my voice is automatically a black voice. That's how it works. What she actually means is that we don't need minorities that don't want to be a progressive voice. And that, my friend, is the true definition of discrimination. The reality is that people are born black or born gay, and being born a certain way does not dictate the ideology or values. People should be allowed to think for themselves and not be told they're portraying the color of their skin or their sexuality because they don't have the same opinions as others with the same color or sexuality. All people, regardless of what identity groups you may have been born into, should be free to use logic and reason to make their own decisions and should not feel forced to side with one political party or ideology because of the way they were born. It should be noted that one is not born Christian or born Muslim. Those are ideologies that someone chooses to be part of, and one would expect someone who is Christian or Muslim to vote along the lines of their ideology. For example, you would expect a Christian to vote against something they believe is immoral. However, this is juxtaposed from being born black, white, brown, or gay. A gay man can and should use logic and reason to decide if, for example, he follows Christ and subscribes to a Christian ideology, or if he subscribes to a different ideology. But it is wrong to tell someone that the immutable characteristics they were born with dictate their beliefs, and that unless they vote for one political party, then their voice shouldn't be heard, like Ayanna Presley, Democrat, Massachusetts. Or they're betraying the characteristics they were born with, like Democrat Joe Biden. Section 15. Not every issue is a moral issue. It's possible to disagree on social issues, fiscal issues, or immigration issues and not be in moral disagreement. Very few issues are issues of morality, and we need to be careful that we do not conflate personal opinions on what is better with moral issues of what God says is right. For example, Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House, Democrat, California, did this in January of 2019 when she said a wall is an immorality in response to President Trump, Republican, proposing funding for the creation of a border wall to curtail waves of illegal immigrants purposely avoiding immigration points on the southern border. But walls aren't inherently immoral. Although they can be used in immoral ways, building a wall on the border to protect the sovereign rights of a country is not in and of itself immoral. Even worse, Nancy Pelosi's statement appears to be entirely disingenuous. Not six years earlier, a nearly identical proposal for a border wall was put forward by then-President Obama, Democrat, and the same idea then was praised by Nancy Pelosi and her party as being not only great, but exactly what the country needed to stop illegal immigration. Thus, it would appear that the only reason she's saying the idea is now immoral is because it was proposed by Trump. There is nothing wrong with Pelosi disagreeing with Trump and arguing that there are better uses for the money, but it is not okay to say that because she disagrees, the border wall itself is immoral. To say that the difference in an opinion on a non-moral issue is a moral issue is a lie and muddies the waters of true issues of morality. Section 16. Logical Morality Morality and logic go hand in hand. If we ever find one at odds with the other, then we got one of them wrong. For example, if morality tells us that racism is immoral, then we cannot use racism to fight racism. If we think that theft is immoral, then we cannot say that one is justified if the other person has more than he needs. A starving man might steal a loaf of bread to survive, but that does not make the theft morally right. Certainly, we might attribute a harsher punishment to the rich kid who steals for fun than the poor man who steals food to survive, but in both cases, the theft is still immoral. Lastly, being kind does not make an immoral action into a moral action. 
It is not charity to give away money that you have stolen from other people. It's still theft. Section 17. Contempt for ideas does not and should not be seen as contempt for individuals. Expressing contempt for the opinion of someone is not and should not be seen as contempt for the person who has the views. This is, in fact, a very common logical fallacy, the ad hominem logical fallacy. The ad hominem logical fallacy is seen when an argument is directed against the person rather than the position they're maintaining. Additionally, a position held by a respected individual like Mother Teresa isn't any more logical because it's made by somebody who has done great good, nor is a position held by an individual who isn't respected, like Adolf Hitler, any less logical because it's held by somebody who has done great evil. When I critique an opinion of someone, like a politician, for being illogical, unscientific, or immoral, that critique is not and should not be construed as contempt for the individual or their elected position. All ideas should be open to consideration and critique. It does not matter who holds them. Section 18. Importance of Critical Thinking Skills Critical thinking is a skill required of every adult. Unfortunately, many children have been sheltered from developing this skill as they grew into adults. In the name of emotional well-being, college students across the country are increasingly demanding protection from words and ideas they don't like. Greg Lukanoff and Jonathan Haidt address this problem in a book they called Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. In it, they argue that it's important to be exposed to opposing ideas. Trigger warnings and safe spaces are not only dangerous, but disastrous on our nation's mental health. Words are not violence, and human minds are not fragile. Like muscles, our minds are anti-fragile and need to be challenged to grow, otherwise they will atrophy like a muscle that's never worked. Being able to hear both sides of an argument and come to a reasoned conclusion is how we find out what ideas are more right, and we should never seek to prevent opinions from being heard that we disagree with. We should challenge ideas we disagree with, but not silence them. People have just as much right to have foolish opinions as they do to have wise opinions. As you read this paper, I would challenge you to do so leveraging critical thinking skills. If you disagree, or if you agree, have a logical reason why. If there is a logical fallacy in an argument I make, find it. Or if there are critical facts that I had not considered, identify them. Do not say that you don't like the way it makes you feel, so therefore it's wrong. Feelings do not matter in discussion of logic, and as Ben Shapiro wisely points out, facts don't care about your feelings. If you disagree with the facts, and the only basis for that disagreement is your feelings, then you're probably wrong. Good intentions and bad ideas don't solve problems, they create problems. Section 19. Application of Logic to Atheism To drive home the importance of being able to use critical thinking skills to apply logic and reason, I would like to use the existence of God as a quick case study. Christians are often faulted for saying that they feel like there is a God without any evidence. Certainly there are people on both sides of the argument of God's existence who rely on feelings instead of facts, but both sides have logic for their positions. Because I thought it important to understand both sides of the argument of God's existence, I read books on both sides with specific evidence for God in the design of nature. I read atheist Richard Dawkins, The Blind Watchmaker, where he argued for unguided evolution, that the apparent designs in biology are proof that there is no designer. Then I read Darwin's Doubt, written by theist Stephen C. Meyer, where he makes the argument that for intelligent design that the apparent designs in biology is proof that there is a designer. In the former book, written by atheist uh, Dawkins, 
To prove that evidence of design shows there is no creator, Dawkins had to refute the problem of a single protein being formed with random mutations. The randomly created protein needed not only to have the right chemical composition, but also the right physical structure. Dawkins admitted that mathematically speaking, the complexity of the protein's chemical composition and physical structure would have taken significantly more time than was available for its evolution if it evolved purely through random mutations, even considering the most extreme trillion-year estimate of the age of the Earth. So Dawkins used a computer simulation to show how a protein could have evolved significantly faster than through random mutations using what he called cumulative selection. He wrote a computer program that could randomly mutate a string of characters representing the coded DNA information and then compare the random string that was generated to a goal string of characters that Dawkins had provided. The program would then choose to keep or reject the newest mutation based on if it was closer or further from the goal provided by Dawkins. This simulation was able to leverage the goal that Dawkins provided to eventually generate a goal through fewer random generations. In fact, the goal string was found few and few enough iterations to make it feasible that a single protein could have been created through cumulative selection in the estimated trillion-year age of the Earth. This experiment was the main premise of his book. Without it, he even admits that it's not feasible that proteins could have evolved randomly. But Dawkins completely ignores the fact that to prove an intelligent design can come without a designer, Dawkins was literally playing God to the program by giving the program the solution to find. In an attempt to prove that no god was needed to create the design, Dawkins had to play god. And so, after reading both books on unguided evolution versus intelligent design, only intelligent design was logical. But this isn't surprising. When digging a hole in your backyard, if you dig up a crushed beer can, we don't marvel at what was created through random processes underground. We hope that the builders who probably left the beer can had finished work on your house at the end of the day before stopping for beer. Or if we dig up a metal box that contains an oil cloth wrapped pocket watch, we don't marvel at what was created through natural random processes underground. It clearly has design, and so we wonder what era it came from and how it came to be buried in your backyard. So why then, when digging in the backyard and we dig up a worm, which is infinitely more complex than anything humans can create, with clearly encoded information on its DNA, do we not wonder about its creator? With incredible arrogance and hubris, we instead say that if it has complexity that surpasses that which man can make, it must therefore not have had a creator. It must have been created by accident because it's far too complicated. Intelligent design is the only logical conclusion when we look at the encoded information on DNA and the clear evidence of design in cells and the rest of nature. However, atheists have used Dawkins' illogical argument to forbid that intelligent design be taught to children, arguing instead that evidence of design in cells and nature is proof that there is no designer. Professing to be wise and scientific, atheists who forbid teaching of intelligent design are neither wise nor scientific. Only those who cover their eyes and refuse to apply logic and the scientific evidence to the puzzle of creation can believe that there was no designer behind the designs we find in life. To be clear, this isn't an argument for Christianity. This is just an argument for intelligent design. When there is clear evidence for design and clear evidence of encoded information, logically there must have been a designer. There are also other arguments for atheism, like variants on the argument that if I was God, I would have done things differently, therefore there is no God. But those atheistic arguments, although equally illogical, do not claim to be scientific. In the same way as one should apply logic to the question of intelligent design versus unguided evolution, I would challenge the reader to do the same with my writing. 
If you disagree, find the bad logic or missing facts. Don't base your opinion on feelings. Understand the argument and logically reason out your conclusion.